Our topic this week from for the depressed people of the Bible will be Moses, the meekest man. Uh, but before we get into Moses, we will uh, allow Dr. Nedley and his son Nathan to uh, share another two hits out of the ten hits that bring about depression. Uh, these principles are laid out in the book that he wrote, uh, Depression the Way Out, and then we will get into Moses, one of the people in the depressed people of the Bible. So let's go right to the video. Welcome to Let's Talk Mental Health, where we bring awareness to the causes and solutions of mental health conditions. I'm your host, Nathan Nedley, and we are in our final part of a five-part series on the depression hit categories. I'm here with Dr. Neil Nedley, and we are looking at two more, the two final ones. Let's get started with the frontal lobe hit. What is a frontal lobe hit? This is something that adversely affects the ability of the analytical portion of our brain to function well. And that's what we call the prefrontal cortex. This is the area of the brain that actually makes us human beings. This is why we can accomplish advanced planning and thinking. Uh, this is why we're spiritual beings as well. There's a reason why you never see dogs and cats flocking to a worship service. They don't have the frontal lobes to be able to worship. But uh, humanity that has a frontal lobe worships. And of course the difference might be who they're worshiping, what they're worshiping. But if they have a frontal lobe, they are indeed uh, able to worship. And this area of our brain turns out to be a crucial part of being able to be mentally healthy. Because if our frontal lobes are suppressed, then our lower brain or our limbic system takes over and we end up becoming managed by our emotions instead of managing our emotions. And so the frontal lobe actually helps us to get ourselves out of anxiety and depression if it's, if it's well-functioning. But in most people's case that have depression and anxiety, it has become near dormant or at least way down in its ability to function. And this is a primary focus of our program is enhancing this front portion of the brain so that the real human being can come back. Is this uh, a hit that is easily reversible? Uh, is there, if say your frontal lobe is under suppression, is it relatively easy to, to reverse that or is it not the case at all? Well, it actually is easy if we uh, pay attention and get rid of the things that are suppressing it and then start to participate in things that will enhance it. Uh, it doesn't take long for it to start coming back. We'll start seeing a difference within seven days in people's abilities to utilize their frontal lobe and how much frontal lobe circulation is doing. And uh, they will continue to uptick beyond that week and their frontal lobe can improve week by week for, for months until about 20 weeks and then we can kind of maximize that in. Wow. So what are ways that someone can enhance their frontal lobe? One of the ways is actually participating in analytical material and analyzing things. One of the ways we do this in our program is actually teaching the uh, people the 10 different ways of distorted thinking. There's 10 hits and for the frontal lobe part, there's 10 different ways that we can think in irrational distorted ways. 
once we start recognizing those 10 ways and catching ourselves in it, analyzing our thoughts for distortions, identifying that distortion, correcting that distortion, it's actually a frontal lobe exercise. Mm. And it actually starts to enhance the frontal lobe of the brain. Another thing we can do is reading the book of Proverbs, um, reading the book of Daniel, looking at the, what turned disappointments into appointments looking for spiritual keys that do this. This is one of the things we do in our residential program because Daniel is loved by everybody. It's where we got the scientific method from, was from Daniel, so the scientists all love Daniel. Um, the Christians love Daniel. The Muslims have monuments to Daniel. The Jews love Daniel. So it's a very non-sectarian book, and it's one that has some powerful ability to help our frontal lobe to improve as we look at the stories and analyze those stories and see how disappointments went into appointments. Music therapy can help. Uh, music that is structured, melodious, uh, that is um, interesting and beautiful, non-dissonant harmonies, what we call consonant harmonies. Uh, this is very healthy for the frontal lobe. And we'll utilize this as well to enhance the frontal lobe. What about suppressants or suppressors to the frontal lobe? There's quite a few suppressants, more than there ever has been in human history, but um, entertainment television actually suppresses our frontal lobe. It's been well documented in multiple studies, and it starts doing that about three minutes into watching your favorite television program. <laughs> it doesn't take long. <laughs> doesn't take long, and of course it's not only during the time, but the after effects also are manifest um, afterwards. So uh, this is a very common frontal lobe suppressant, uh, music that is heavy in the rhythm, in syncopated rhythm in particular, uh, can start enhancing the frontal lobe also within about a minute and a half to three minutes after it's being um, listened to. And this can actually um, decrease our ability to be calm under stress. It can decrease our um, actual joy and happiness and the simple pleasures in life just by suppressing this area of the frontal lobe. And so, uh, yes, we, uh, we have people stop their frontal lobe suppressant uh, behavior, and we replace it with frontal lobe enhancing behavior, and what a difference that starts making, as mentioned, in as little as a week we'll start to see it. Wow. Uh, the second thing we're talking about is addiction. That's the, the, the last hit that we're focusing on, and I'm guessing that frontal lobe the, or the frontal lobe has a significant role to play in the addiction hit. Do you want to speak about what that role is and how you go about dealing with addiction in your practice? Yeah, well, anyone who has an addiction is and is succumbing to that addiction, even though they know it's unhealthy for them, it's a sign that they need more frontal lobe <laughs> enhancement because they're not going to be able to manage themselves or overcome that addiction without the frontal lobe starting to enhance in circulation activity. But addictions in and of themselves will start to suppress the frontal lobe as well. <clears throat> and so, you know, first people do the addiction in order to try to get high, but the longer they do it, the less high they become, and pretty soon they're just doing it to get numb because in between times they feel this deep, distressing sense of deprivation, even though there's nothing bad going on in their life. And it's kind of a sad state of existence. People that have addictions, if we take a look at their dopamine activity in their brain, their dopamine activity is far lower than a healthy person with no addictions. Right. And a lot of people think, well, this healthy person, how is he being happy? Because he seems to be happy with just simple things, you know. 
uh, going out for a walk, he's happy with that. Having a nice meal, he's happy with that. Listening to good music, he's happy with that. Where a person with addictions, they can't get very happy with those type of things. They might feel slightly better, but overall they're still really down because their dopamine activity is so low as a result of repeatedly utilizing their addiction of choice. And so this is why it's so crucial to get those people off of their addictions. And of course, we prepare people when they come to our program. We let them know, you know, this is, uh, this is a program that's going to uh, have you get off those addictions, so it might be good for you to start getting off them even beforehand so you don't have as much of withdrawal symptoms. And then there may be addictions like alcohol that if they're really heavy users, <clears throat> we can't necessarily stop that all at once without replacing it with something else to prevent alcohol withdrawal seizures. We might do that with benzos as well. We try to wean them slowly off of the benzos. Uh, those are very addictive drugs and they're frontal lobe suppressants. But if we took them off abruptly, they would have seizures and they would maybe even go into psychosis and hallucinations and end up in the hospital. And so we have to do some of these addictions on a more careful basis. But most addictions, uh, they're able to quit through the cold turkey method, and when their frontal lobe starts enhancing, they realize they can actually stay off it, and they'll end up far happier with much better dopamine activity with no addictions. Well, I was going to ask you, because it's kind of a classic chicken and the egg situation, you're dealing with an addiction that's suppressing your frontal lobe, but to overcome the addiction, you need your frontal lobe. So do you typically, you know, attack bringing back the frontal lobe as much as possible and dealing with addiction or just focusing on removing the addiction and waiting for the frontal lobe to reactivate, so to say? Yeah, well, that's a very great question, and it actually goes back to what type of addiction. For the benzos, we'll work on enhancing their frontal lobe first before we take them off the benzos because they're not going to do well at all unless their frontal lobe is enhanced. But if it's something like tobacco's, uh, that's something that can be stopped abruptly. And so we would, um, you know, take care of that right on day one before the frontal lobe even has a chance to be enhanced. And, um, and they'll do far better after the frontal lobe is enhanced, but they're in an environment now with us where it's just going to be far easier to get rid of that, have it be the cold turkey method. We know there's going to be nicotine withdrawal. We'll be able to handle it with all the other things we're doing. They'll be able to get over it a lot easier in our program than doing it at home. Right. And uh, every program, we have people highly addicted to nicotine that get over it, and they're just shocked at how easy it is. Wow. And that's just removing the addiction, cold, you know, quitting cold turkey. Quitting cold turkey in a supportive environment that's going to help brain chemistry. Right. And then working to strengthen the frontal lobe and Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for going over this uh, five-part series with us, Dr. Nedley. This was our fifth part. If you missed any of the other ones or didn't see all of them, you can check our YouTube channel and go back and rewatch or watch for the first time any of those five parts that go over the 10 depression hit categories. This is Let's Talk Mental Health. I'm your host, Nathan Nedley, and as always, stay healthy, live happy. Okay, so as he mentioned there, there's uh, several, uh, how important the frontal lobe is. Um, and we saw, as he, or as he mentioned, that there are many things that they do in the residential program to help people off of the addictions or off of uh, re uh, restoring the frontal lobe and, and as we've seen in other weeks, uh, to help us out of depression.
And, uh, and so it really is a great program, very thorough and very uh, uh, wide-ranging and covering a lot of different areas. So much more than just going to someone, talking to them for a half hour or an hour and sharing all your problems and having them uh, prescribe some kind of medication. Um, and, and continuing that uh, process, you know, monthly or weekly, forever uh, with very, very low success rate, uh, where they have a very high success rate. And so hopefully, as we're covering these various different principles and going over various different people in the Bible who've experienced this and how they've found ways out, hopefully that'll be enough to, to help you or those that you care about and love uh, out of the depression. But if not, do recommend the, either the residential program, either the Nedley uh, Depression and Re Anxiety and Recovery uh, program, or they also have a non-residential program where it can be done virtually. And so I recommend you look into that uh, as well. Very, very, again, positive and helpful. And as you mentioned, the frontal lobe, uh, worship, that's where we make our decisions for worship. And the Bible talks about that, the seal of God being written, the laws of God being written in our forehead, because that's where the frontal lobe is, right there in the, right behind the, the forehead, the forehead part of the brain. And that's what it's talking about. And then also the flip side of that, uh, the mark of the beast. It's not so much a tattoo. It's not at all a tattoo on the, on the forehead, but it's the frontal lobe decision to not worship. And that's what it talks about, the, the worship of the beast. The mark of the beast is who they worship, right? They worship the beast. And then again, for God to worship him who created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. Uh, and so it has to do with that decision-making process out of our frontal lobe, and so another important reason to keep the frontal lobe sharp and, and working, and as he mentioned, there are medications or drugs that, um, that can suppress that frontal lobe, and we need the frontal lobe in order to truly be able to worship God. And so that's one part of the brain, the frontal lobe. There are other parts of the, the brain. Uh, how many have ever heard of the, the, the temporal lobe? Temporal lobe, part of the brain, right? That was named after me. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people don't know that, but when they did an experiment and they, they, they saw that when information was put into my brain, it only stayed there temporarily. And thus they called it the temporal uh, lobe. Right? So, anyway, let's get into to Moses and into the Bible. And Moses is an interesting character because we have his whole history from his birth uh, all the way through to his death, 120 years of recorded history of this person. And we also have a little bit of information about his parents, which is very helpful to understand uh, the depression he went through and even suicidal uh, moments, that, that moment that he had, and we'll look at that. Uh, now, Moses' life is broken up, that 120 years, broken up to four basically equal 40-year segment, uh, segments. Uh, for the first 40 years, he's there in, in Egypt, in Pharaoh's court for most of that time, and then the second 40 years, he's in the wilderness as a shepherd, and then the 30, 40 years, the third segment of 40 years, he is leading the children of Israel uh, to the promised land. And so let's take a look at the life of Moses. We'll start in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 11. The Egyptians set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with their burdens. The Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Verse 22, Pharaoh commanded, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river. And that went on for hundreds of years and no doubt uh, was a very, very stressful situation to live under and would 
bring about lots of possible hits that would bring about depression, and so it is very possible that Moses had uh, parents or grandparents, uh, great-grandparents who experienced uh, severe depression under those type of settings. And when Moses was uh, growing in the womb, no doubt Jacob and his mother uh, knew of people or saw firsthand of children being ripped from their homes, uh, cast into the, the river, eaten by crocodiles, and so bearing that stress and seeing that and that grief and that remorse and, and horror of that uh, type of setting uh, would be affecting Moses' development in the womb, which would start him off with a genetic hit. In Hebrews, so how did they deal with that? How did his parents deal with that? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 tells us, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. They were not afraid of the king's command. So they made a positive frontal lobe decision to not allow what they were seeing happening around them and what they were experiencing and, and the oppression and the rigor and the, and the, and, and, and the threatenings uh, and the fears. They did not allow that to come into their minds and hearts. They chose to reject reality that was there and chose to experience and live in the spiritual reality that God is more powerful than even the king's of this earth. And so they hid Moses for three months. And then at the end of the three months, they must have decided it was too dangerous to keep this crying baby here. Uh, for whatever reason, they made a little basket, put him in the basket, brought him down to the river, and assigned his older sister Miriam to watch out for the crocodiles. <laughs> Poor Miriam, right? <laughs> Some job. Uh, I don't know if she ever got over that. <laughs> Maybe she got back at Moses later on. We'll take a look at that. And, uh, but, uh, but that was her assignment. And the basket floats over by where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. And maybe that was intentional. And maybe that was part of the plan. We'll put the baby there. And Miriam, you watch this and, and uh, nudge it over to, to uh, Pharaoh's daughter. She seems like a kind-hearted maybe, lady, maybe. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket. They go and open the basket, and she goes, oh, look, a Jewish baby. And she falls in love with it. Well, how'd she know it was a Jewish baby? Must have been the nose, right? So, uh, so she opens it, falls in love, and says, and then Miriam bursts out of the bulrushes and says, do you want me to find someone to nurse the baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And so then the maid called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you wages. And Jacobed took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So that worked out pretty good for Jacobed, right? She, she, uh, she got paid to nurse her own child. That's amazing, right? That's a pretty good deal, right? So that paid off uh, literally for her and uh, gave some benefit. And uh, now, uh, so she kept him and, and nursed him and until he was weaned. Now the Bible doesn't say it, but we know that he, she didn't wean him until he was 35 years old. She kept him as long as possible, right? Wouldn't you? How long would you keep the child before you had to turn him over to, to Pharaoh? So we don't know how old he was, but uh, it might have been a time, because it was enough time. He seems to have known later on, 40 years later, we see he knows that he's Jewish. Maybe getting looked in the mirror and saw his nose and decided I must be Jewish, or however he, he knew he was Jewish. And, um, 
It might have been in this time of raising that he uh, had with his parents and sister and brother. Now, which one is his real mother? Jacobed, who conceived him and raised him for three, nine months in the womb and, and three months in her home and then nursed him? Or Pharaoh's daughter, who raised him the rest of the time? Who is the real mother? Here the Bible says, and he became her, referring to the prince, princess of Egypt, the Pharaoh's daughter. Who is the real mother? Jacobed or Pharaoh's daughter? Right, both. An adoptive mother is just as much a real mother as a biological mother. And maybe in many cases, if not most cases, more so, because they demonstrate love towards a child. Now there are some times where you know, a death or, or sickness or some type of thing, or like in this situation where the baby is forcefully removed, that uh, the mother did love and did show love and wanted to love the child. But that does not negate the love of the adoptive mother. And when we stop looking for love in places that we're not receiving it, we will be a whole lot more at peace and experience contentment. And whether that's on the job we're at, or in the marriage we're in, or the parents we have, or the children we have, if they are giving us love and acceptance and, 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 and positive feedback, then we should accept that and receive that instead of constantly looking for some place that's going to appreciate me more, that's going to pay me more, that's going to love me more, that's going to do more for me, that's going to call me more often and show me more affection, and we're constantly looking for something else, when God has already provided for that need. Now, of course, unless it's an abusive situation, then certainly we should go out under it. But if they're showing appreciation and love, then we need to accept that and not constantly looking for love when we need to learn to accept and receive the love that God is giving to us through those around us. And we'll be a lot more content. Chapter 2, verse 11, when Moses was grown... He went to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating one of his brethren. So again, he knows they were his brethren. Now we just went 40 years, right? So we just jumped a quick 40 years from his uh, birth and the whole situation with uh, being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter to now he's about 40 years old, and he goes down to his brethren, and he sees one of them getting beaten, and he needs to make a decision. It's a very hard decision for him. Who is he going to make his uh, allegiance to? To... Uh, Pharaoh's court, they've been raised in and been very good to him. Uh, they've been very good to him and raising him in that court. Uh, he wasn't killed uh, as a child and taken care of and offered a lot of promise and, and luxury. Or rather to be with the slaves that are being beaten and oppressed. And he's making this decision and he doesn't have anyone to talk to, right? Who can he talk to about that? Can he go to any of the Egyptians and anyone in Pharaoh's court and ask, well, what do you think I should make? What, what do you think I should do? Do you think you can go to the, any of the Israelites and ask them? Would they understand? Could they relate? And sometimes we're in situations where there's no one we can talk to. And we need to make a decision. Right? Sometimes we're in a, in, a, in a job situation and maybe we see corruption going on and maybe total outward crime. 
Do we blow the whistle on them? Do we expose it? Sometimes we're forced to make a decision whether to keep a job or not keep a job. There are people right now going through this kind of decision and sometimes it's hard to, to know who to talk to. It takes that frontal lobe, having a clear frontal lobe and hearing the voice of God to be able to know the decision we need to make. And sometimes it will change our lives. Sometimes it will mean losing that job and maybe not, maybe having a hard time finding another job. Not a, a lot of companies want to hire a whistleblower. Everyone's got dirt in their, under their fingernails and, and then maybe might blow the whistle on us as well. Maybe the spouse is saying, look, you can't do that. We won't have any money. We won't be able to feed. We're going to starve to death if, if, you, if you say that and lose that job. I'll leave you if you do that. A lot of pressure is put to bear. You could end up losing the home, becoming homeless as a result. Things can spiral down. We, never, we don't know. But Moses makes the right choice based on principle, as it tells us again in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Messiah greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked for the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." And his decision here is not so much uh, over the Egyptians or the Israelites as over the Egyptian gods or the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea, the true God. And he makes the right decision and he chooses to stand with God and the people of God, whatever that means. And whether even if it means standing against and up to the rest of the world. He makes a right decision frontal lobe decision until he makes a wrong action. <laughs> Back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Acts 7, 25, his brethren did not understand. Exodus 2, 15, and when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And so Moses is sensing the call of God, that God has raised him for this purpose, to be the deliverer. And he goes and he tries to do it in his own power, in his own strength, in his own way. And he ends up killing this Egyptian and having to flee. And nothing happens for the children of Israel for another 40 years. Remain in bondage, remain under rigor, remain under the strain and pressure, many dying under that condition over a 40 year period of time. When maybe God had a different plan, maybe God had placed him in Pharaoh's court to be like a Daniel or to be like a Joseph and to have an influence there to help the people then and there in that position, maybe even become the Pharaoh or certainly have the Pharaoh's ear to be able to influence and help the people and maybe even give them freedoms and set them free and set them free in a different way. Who knows? But if he would have listened to the word of God, he certainly could have dealt with that Egyptian in some other different way than just killing him right there on the spot. Could have pulled him aside, could have brought some help to the, 
to the person who was beaten, uh, could have restrained him in some way, shape, or form, and use his position and his influence to start to make change. And so he makes a wrong choice. No doubt that murder plagues him for many, many years, if not for the rest of his life. Sometimes it's just one decision that we make, one wrong choice that we do, one wrong action that we do that can affect us for the rest of our lives and affect many other people for the rest of their lives. A wrong choice by Abraham has affected many people since that time until today. It's very important that we have our frontal lobe clear, that our minds are clear, that we're hearing the word of God, and that we're not taking God's commandments and trying to do them in our own power, but allowing the Holy Spirit to come in us and move us in following God's direction and doing it in God's way, in the proper way. Here, he, Moses is manifesting a form of legalism, hearing the call of God, but trying to do it in his own strength. And that is disastrous. It's disastrous for Moses, it would be disastrous for us as well. So he goes and he sits down at a well and seven daughters came to draw water. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And Moses was content to live with them and married Zipporah. And then boom, we're at another 40 years. <laughs> and so we've covered 80 years of Moses' life in, in just one chapter. Uh, and uh, there's not a whole lot written, but these are pretty good times for Moses. And there's some troubles at his birth, and which he, you know, as a child, as a baby, didn't even know really what was going on. Uh, some pressures being raised in a fishbowl of Pharaoh's court, no doubt, was, was stress, stressful. But for the most part, compared to everybody else, he had it very good. And so not much is written about that. And then he's there and with the sheep. Right? He's got his, his, his wife and, and sister-in-laws and, and father-in-law who appreciate him and love him and two sons and who knows, a bunch of sheep that listen to him and follow him. He's got it good, he's got it easy, and not much is written about that. Not much is written in the Bible about the good times. We have books in the Bible written about Moses' last 40 years of his life. And that's what he's remembered for today. And maybe it's in the last third of our lives that God will use us the most. There are presidents who, who are older than, than, than many of us here today, and so maybe God still wants you to be president someday in this country, right? <laughs> Nothing seems impossible anymore. But God can still use us in amazing ways. God used Moses in amazing ways in the last one-third of his life. In the peaceful times, not much is written. But change is always difficult. They went through a change, leaving Egypt, leaving those there. Change, new setting, new environment, new career. Still felt kind of out of place there in the wilderness. Probably still felt the calling of God to deliver the people. He always remembering them under oppression. Still living with the haunting of his mind that he didn't do what God had called him to do. 
but for the most part, peaceful, happy years. In chapter 3, verse 11, Moses said to God, the burning bush takes place, Moses goes to the burning bush, and Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In Exodus 4.13, please send someone else. And so we have about 10 verses in the Bible on Moses' first 40 years. We have about 10 verses in the Bible, give or take, on, on the second 40 years. And then we have like 25 verses on just this one conversation that God has with Moses, more verses than the first 80 years of his life, on him debating whether or not he's the one that God has called to go and deliver the people. Call someone else, can't use someone else, who am I, I'm slow of speech. Give them argument after argument after argument that he doesn't feel called to go. And so in the first 40 years, we see Moses, in his mind anyway, Moses is everything. Moses is the deliverer, Moses is going to deliver the people, and he goes forth to do so. Might be the next Pharaoh at one point, he's in the Pharaoh's court. It's all about Moses. The second 40 years, Moses is nothing. Just a shepherd out there in the wilderness with just some sheep. He's nothing. And he even says that to God. He's like, I'm nothing. I can't do anything. Choose someone else. Nothing. And in the last 40 years, God becomes everything. And that's the key. We need to go from being self-centered to nothing-centered to God-centered. And that's where the glory can be revealed. God's power manifested through us. That God can use us no matter where we're at. And so this is not humility, what Moses is manifesting here by saying, oh no, I can't do it, I can't speak, who, who am I? Please send someone else. It might sound humble, but that's not humble. That's insecure. When God calls us to do something, God is able to empower us to do it. He wouldn't call us if he couldn't empower us to do it. What God says in God's command is the power itself to fulfill it. And so whatever he says, if he says, Moses, go, then he's going to give him the power to do so. And if God impresses us and, and reveals to us and convicts us of some calling that he has upon us, then he will go before us and he will empower us and he will use us in fulfilling that. Some commandment out of the word of God or all the commandments out of the word of God, he will give us the power if we allow him to live in us and through us to fulfill those commandments as well. So this is not a spirit of humility because God had called him to do it. God eventually gets frustrated with him and angry with him and sends him off and Moses finally becomes willing and surrenders and obeys. He goes to Pharaoh's court and demands that Pharaoh let the people go. Ten plagues take place and Pharaoh eventually lets the children of Israel go. We go through the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. We pass through on dry ground. God closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians. So what are the hits that Moses experienced? So we saw it very possibly he had a genetic hit, family history. 
developmental, in the womb, and rough childhood, being switched from family to family, and again, difficult being raised in a, in a court system like Pharaoh's court, no doubt a lot of pressures there, a lot of competition for the throne and positions and all with that. Lifestyle, he probably lived a pretty good lifestyle. Uh, we know from his writings, he, he gives the commandments of God on how to live right and how to eat right. And probably in Pharaoh's court, he probably was able to live healthy and circadian rhythm. He probably did pretty good with that. Maybe sometimes we're not under a lot of stress and a lot of moves and a lot of time. But for the most part, addiction, I don't think there was any addictions. But Moses, nutrition, again, probably ate well. Toxic, probably not. Social and grief, well, he experienced a lot of stress, stress of the pressure of no one to get advice from, stress of making a decision, who to, who's the true God, who to put his allegiance with, the stress of having no support at times, and great loss. Separated from his biological family, and then later on separated from his adoptive family. Experienced great loss. And then when God sent him to deliver the people, his whole life changed from a nice, quiet setting, easy life, to a very difficult career. Experienced great loss. Yes, several times and throughout his, his life. Medical, we don't know. Frontal lobe, Again, for the most part, he does good. And so for the majority of his life, he's living with three hits. Again, he's got the first two. And stress most of his life, or loss, or no support system. And so most of his life, he's living with three hits. Just one hit lower than the going over the four where depression can take place. And in 120 years, we only have one instance written where he experienced depression. And I'm sure if there was others, the Bible would tell us, because it, again, tells us all the bad stuff. The good stuff just glosses over. How did he live 119 years and 11 months without depression when he was so close all the time? We'll see that. And when did this take place? So this... Depression takes place a little over a year after the parting of the Red Sea in our wilderness experience. He's received the Ten Commandments from God. He's gone up on the mount. He's received the instruction for building the Mishkan, the, temple, the sanctuary. And it's built, and they have that, and worship services are taking place. God is providing water out of a rock, manna down from heaven. All their needs are met. And they're on their way and journeying to the promised land. They haven't yet made it to the Jordan River where they blow it and are told they're going to wander for 40 years. So they're on their way there, a lot of anticipation. God is giving them a cooling shade, a cloud during the day, warm fire at night. They have everything. They have their needs met. Provision given to them. Everything is good. And they're on their way to the promised land. Can't get much better than this. They're out of, free, out of slavery. They're free. The first time in hundreds of years. And again, within about a little over a year period of time, 
this event takes place. The mixed multitude yielded to intense craving. So Israel also wept again. Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. But now there is nothing except this manna. And thus they sell their souls for some onions and garlic. How pitiful. When they have angel food, the Bible calls manna angel food. Directly from heaven. And it starts with the mixed multitude, their intense cravings, longings, again, looking for something else. Where is there something better? Oh, I wish, and never content and never happy, always looking for something else. And then Israel also follows suit. When we hear people grumbling and complaining and backbiting and criticizing, we don't have to join with them. We don't have to follow their example. We don't have to get caught up in it. It's dangerous, trap. We don't have to let someone else's depression or someone else's problem become our depression. And Moses may be kind of shocked at this. Things are so good, and when things are good, we're kind of shocked when someone then complains. And the anger, Numbers chapter 11, verse 10, the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused, and Moses was also displeased. So it sounds like Moses and, and the Lord are on the same page here with this. Until we continue reading, Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people that you should say to me, carry them to the land which you swore to their fathers? So God is angry with the people and Moses is displeased with God. Why did you do this to me? Why did you give me this burden? And he's fallen back into thinking the commands of God are on his shoulders. That it's his burden to fulfill God's commands. And God's promise. And again, that was the problem that Abraham had. God said, I'm going to give you a child, I'm going to give you, make your descendants as many as the sands of the sea. And Abraham said, well, I got a lot to do then. I got to find some way to do this. He thought it was his job. Instead of allowing God to use him and work through him. And Moses here again falls into that trap. Taking the burden of the commandment upon himself and trying to fulfill it in his own way, in his own power. And we don't have it. And again, that's legalism. Legalism is not being obedient to God. Obedience, being obedient to God is called righteous and righteousness or holiness which God has called us to. Legalism is an attempt to obey God in our own strength. And that's what makes it legalism. That's what makes it burdensome. That's what makes it impossible to do, because we do not have the strength to do it in our own power. 
but through God, he will give us the power to do it. And so Moses has fallen back in the, into this temporarily Moses-centered setting. And we see this as the verses continue on, verse 13. Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now, if I found favor in your sight. And do not let me see my wretchedness. What state of mind is Moses in? Depression, suicidal. Yeah, take my life. Let me die. Kill me right here. He'd rather, he'd rather be dead. And so we saw that with Elijah. We saw that with Jonah. So it's not uncommon, so don't be surprised if at some point in your life you think life would be a whole lot easier if you weren't alive. It happened to them. Don't dwell on it. Don't follow through with it. But don't be surprised if Satan doesn't tempt you with those thoughts. And because Moses is making a wrong frontal lobe decision by being self-centered and trying to fulfill God's commands on his own, he gets angry with God, displeased with God, and that sends him very quickly in a downward spiral over the four hit level to suicide very quickly. Suicide th thinking, anyway, very quickly. How quickly it can come. That's why it's so important for us to keep our hit levels down and to allow God to give us the ability to make those changes in our lives that we need to make to keep those hit levels down. So anything can hit us quickly. And again, he probably was surprised. Things were so good. And it's amazing how when we do so much for people, and sometimes they're the very ones who reject us and blame us and complain to us the most. If it wasn't for Moses, they'd still be there. And instead of appreciating it and being thankful to God for the provision and the manna and the water, they grumbled and complained. And often it's in, often it's in the times of prosperity and peace that we become so lax in our walk with God. We need to get into the habit and learn to love him and receive his love and give him love on a continual basis throughout our lives. Because people will always talk bad. We shouldn't be surprised. Eventually, it will happen. And so how does God deal with this? Very similar how he dealt with Elijah when Elijah said basically the same thing. Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men, that they may stand there with you. I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same upon them, and, I, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. The Lord will give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils. Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Right? So God says, don't worry, I can take care of it. My arm is strong enough to, to do it, and I'm going to give you help. Go get 70 people and they will help you out. Kind of like he said to Elijah, and I'll put my spirit upon them. Just like he did for Elijah, he gave Elijah Elisha, and he gave Elisha a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he had him go and anoint a couple of kings. So he says, go and get 70 people. 
We don't have to do it alone. God has given us humanity, friends and people around us, made us social beings so we can help one another. That's why he gave Adam Eve to be a helpmate. He doesn't want us to be lone rangers. And even lone ranger had Tonto, right? He calls us to, to work together. To not do it all on our own. Think it's all on us. But to seek the help of others. And sometimes it's hard for us to think. Maybe I can't think of anyone else. Just like Elijah, you couldn't think of anyone else. And God said, I still got 7,000 you don't even know about. God has people that we can't even think of. They might be right before our face. We might know them, but we're not thinking about them. Sometimes all it takes is asking. Sometimes again, we get this insecurity and we're too afraid to ask, but they might say no. It's not wrong to say no. Actually, God prefers it. Instead of 25 verses of Moses giving excuse after excuse after excuse, don't you hate it when people give you an excuse? And then you solve that excuse for them? You know, oh, I, I, can't, I can't get there, I don't have a ride. Oh, well, I can provide a ride for you. Uh, well, uh, I can't get there because it might rain. Well, I'll give you an umbrella. Oh, well, the, and, the, and the forecast is saying it's going to sign. Oh, well, you know, one excuse after another. Just say no. If you, if you don't feel called to do it, you know, you prefer not to do it, just say no. Let your nays be nay and your yeas be yay, right? Your yeses be yes and, and your noes be no. Don't give excuses. Say yes or no. People can live with that a whole lot more than excuses. God didn't like it, and people don't like it. And so, well, don't be afraid to ask people. And if they say, no, it's not the end of the world, go ask somebody else. <laughs> and if they say, no, go find another person, find somebody that'll help you out. No, it is not about you. It's about them. Either, again, they can't do it, or don't want to do it, or don't feel called to do it. But that's okay, that's up to them. It has nothing to do with you. Stop, we have to stop being so self-centered, thinking it's all about us, that if they say no to me, it's a rejection of me. It's not a rejection of me, it's a rejection of what I asked them to do. And maybe they have good reasons, you know, their own reasons for whatever. They're not doing it, and that's fine. It's not the end of the world. And turn to God. God, guide me to somebody. And God can bring someone that we didn't even know about before. I don't know if Elijah knew about Elijah before. But God will bring us to the right people at the right time if we seek him. He says, if you lack faith, ask for faith and he'll give it. Well, I'm sure if we, if we ask for help, he'll give help. That's what we're needing. Stop trying to do it alone. And work together as a team. They will know that we are believers by our love. Love for one another. God calls us to work together in harmony together. Balancing each other out. That's why he's given gifts and different gifts and different talents and different abilities to different people. So that we're forced to be dependent on each other to become whole. None of us are whole in ourselves. None of us are complete in ourselves. That's how he's made us, on purpose. So we need each other. And so that's God's solution. And then, within just another couple of verses, the very next chapter... So Moses comes out of the depression, he does this, he comes out of the depression, and then the very next chapter, Moses gets hit again with an attack, but this time he doesn't go into depression. And we'll see what makes the difference this time. So what is the attack? Chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Canaanite woman whom he had married. 
Now they've been traveling together for over a year. And now all of a sudden they bring this up. What have they been waiting for? If you've got something on your heart, speak up. So now they're criticizing Moses' choice of a wife. And Moses doesn't take it personally. He prays for them and intercedes for them. Not just praying about them, but prays for them, for Miriam and Aaron, for their well-being. We shouldn't take it personally. We shouldn't take attacks personally. Because it's not about us. We're not the one with the problem. They're the ones with the problem. Most often, the attack is not personal. It's not because they hate us. There's a lot of people in this world who are idiots. Like you and me. And we're all, we're all idiots. And we all offend, whether purposely or, or, un, or unconsciously, whether sinfully or just because we're so wrapped up in ourselves we don't realize, you know, we're not thinking, and we just affect other people. Right? The person who cuts you off on the road isn't because he hates you. He's late for work or whatever, he's not thinking, he wasn't watching, wasn't paying attention to that turn he made, he didn't look out his mirror. And nothing to do with you. And you will get all upset and ruin our day because of someone else. It's unconscious, unthinking actions. Now, there are some times when it's a personal attack on us. But even in those cases, it's not about us. They were mean and ornery before they met you. <laughs> and they'll be mean and ornery after you go out of their lives. You just happen to be in the way of their target practice at the time, right? It had nothing to do with you. That's just how they are. So we don't have to take it personally. You know, if what they say is, is not true, then don't, ignore it. What they say is true, then take it to heart and maybe, by God's grace, make some changes. Right? If someone called me fat, it wouldn't bother me. I know it's not true, right? What's, they can say whatever they want. They got a problem, right? On the other hand, if they say you're ugly, well, you know, I got to admit to that. You know, what can I do? <laughs> Just agree with them, right? Okay, so what? <laughs> but if there's something you can do about it, then you make the change. But don't take it as an offense. And when we realize they're the ones with the problem, then we will have pity upon them and pray for them. And they might cut up, come out of their grouchiness or their grumbling or their complaining or their bitterness or their anger or their rudeness or their meanness and might experience God's peace and love. Not to be so rude and inconsiderate we can pray for them. And in the next, just two verses from here, it tells us specifically in the Bible how Moses was able to not fall for this hit. I mean, it's coming from his family, brother and sister, of all people. 
And then while they're in the wilderness, he gets hit by a cousin. A cousin rebels against him and tries to form a whole coup against him. Take him down as leader. So the Pharaoh was angry at him. Family and cousins and brother and sister. His wife calls him a bloody husband. <laughs> but he didn't take it personally when those attacks came. And we don't have to take those personally either. And so two verses later, it tells us in verse 3, Moses was very meek above all men which were upon the face of the earth. It's learning to be meek. That's the key to contentment. Now, when was Moses meek? Was it when he was kneeling before the burning bush? Or was it when he was standing before Pharaoh demanding, let my people go? God says, let my people go. When was he being meek? When? In front of the bush? In front of Pharaoh? Both. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is surrender before God, which makes us strong before men. That is what meekness is. That's a biblical definition of meekness. And we see that in Moses. When he surrendered and took off his shoes and kneeled before the burning bush before the Lord, God was able to empower him and strengthen him and give him the ability to stand before the pharaohs of this world. And God will do the same for us. When we're surrendered to God, obedient to God, under his presence, under his love, we will be able to be filled with his glory and his goodness. And it won't matter what people say about us. It won't matter what people do to us. It won't matter if they reject us and don't appreciate all the goodness that we've done for them. We'll be able to be content with the love of God and the presence of God and the goodness of God. And that will be strong, uh, that will be biblical meekness. It will give us soundness of mind and strength of heart. And that is what we each need. Now there's two sets of Bible texts that give us a balance of this meekness. They describe this meekness, this principle, in two different ways. Two seemingly totally opposite ways. When we focus on one, we'll be distorted. If we focus on just the other group, we'll be distorted. But when we combine them and understand them in harmony with each other, we will be whole and happy and content and meek. So let's look at the first group. John chapter 15, verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. Genesis 3:19. From dust... You are, and from dust you will be. Isaiah 64, uh, 6, All our righteousness are filthy rags. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, None who do good, no, not 
1. And many other like texts we can look at. So in and of ourselves, we are nothing. And remember, that was the second stage of Moses' life. First he started with Moses being the centered, and we're all born that way. We're all born self-centered. We're all born, God gave us that nature to put self first. He didn't give it to us. We, we took that on, our carnal nature, when we rejected God. Adam and Eve rejected God, and humanity took on the carnal nature. So we're all born with that carnal nature that puts self first. And then you went to that nothing state, which for him at that point was insecurity. It doesn't have to be for us. It can be just a surrender and acknowledgement. Hey, yeah, without God, I can do nothing. There's nothing I can do without him. I can't breathe without him. I can't see without him. I can't talk without him. I can't walk without him. I can't digest food without him. I can't do anything without him. That came from the dust and it'll die. We lived so many years and just a speck of time in Earth's history and in the universe's history. Here today, gone tomorrow, we're really nothing. It's just a reality. That even all the goodness that we might do is really nothing but filthy menstrual cloth rags. And then none of us do good. No one, no one does good. There's no one good but God. That's a reality. But then there's the other side, which is just as much a reality as well. And these texts say, Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through the Messiah who strengthens me. Philippians 2, 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Prince and princes with him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. And so there's those texts that bring it into balance. There are those, including preachers, who like to focus on just the one side of the text. I'm bad, 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 no good, I can't do anything, i find someone else, I can't speak, I can't do anything. We're all bad, you're bad, sinners, 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 you're sinners, going to hell. Or there's others who will focus on the second set of texts. I'm good, I'm wonderful, I'm great, I can do everything, I can do anything. Positive thinking, positive, positive, happy, 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 good, good, good. You're wonderful, you're terrific. You've been called for greatness. And just focus on those texts. But it's again, putting them both together where we get the reality and the truth. We are nothing without God. We are nothing but dirt without God. We can't accomplish any good without God. We're here today, gone tomorrow, without God. But God so loved us. God so loved me. God so loved you. That he gave his most precious possession. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not have to perish. But have everlasting life in the eternal promised land. We are his children. 
exalted and raised up, seated at his right hand, beloved by him with an eternal love. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Co-inheritors with him, brothers and sisters with him, united with him, empowered by him, able to do all things, everything, whatever he commands. Nothing is impossible with God. Parting the Red Sea, raising the dead, whatever God calls, he's able to do. Able to work through humanity to stand before the pharaohs of this earth. To speak to a rock and water to come out. Nothing is impossible with God. I can do all things through the Messiah who strengthens me, whatever is according to his will. And it's God through his Holy Spirit that comes into us and lives in us and out of us, who does it for us and through us. Because we realize we are nothing without him. But as long as we think we're something, then we get in his way. And then he can't use us. If we keep on trying, he can't use us. But when we surrender and allow him to use us, it's like a glove. You know, you can have a carpenter, a great carpenter, and you look at his work and go, wow, I'm really admiring your work. I wish I could do work like that. Can I borrow your gloves? Will his gloves make you a great carpenter? If I just had a pair of gloves like that, I could do like he does. It's not the gloves, it's the hand in the glove. We're all just gloves, we're nothing. And the glove can be used, put into a hand and punch somebody. Or the glove can be used to make beautiful things. It all depends on the hand that we allow to be in us. Whether we want to allow Satan to control us and manipulate us and to be uh, hurtful to people, or whether we want allow the Holy Spirit to come into us and use us. But we're nothing but the glove in and of ourselves. But when we allow God to place us upon his hands, he makes us glorious and uses us to do glorious things. And that again is true meekness. Realizing our state of nothingness, realizing his great love for us, and allowing him to empower us so that we have no fear and able to stand up in this world. So let's look at our list of appeals. We've got a whole bunch of appeals because there's a lot in Moses' life tonight. And so if any of these apply to you, then we'll have an opportunity to pray and surrender it to the Lord. So the first appeal. Have you been in situations where you were called to make some very hard decisions and you had no one to talk to who could relate to your dilemma or who would be a safe confidant? Can you relate to that? Moses' experience, he had no one to talk to. Sometimes you're in a situation, who am I going to talk to? And we just can rely on God. Trust in him. Allow him to open up our minds to hear his voice and to guide us in his word, to give directions. Can you relate to Moses' conflict of knowing the right action probably will not go well and in the end will cost you your current lifestyle, possibly your family, your job, or even your life? Various times in our lives we can relate to that. Choose God's side. Choose to allow God to give you the power to make that right choice and do what is right and leave the results with God. 
Have you made decisions or mistakes in your life that caused you to be misunderstood and rejected? Have your actions caused you to lose your job, home, family, or friends? So sometimes a right choice will cause that to happen, but sometimes a wrong choice will cause that to happen as well. And if it's been a wrong choice that caused that to happen in your life, then confess it, accept the Messiah's death in your place, receive his forgiveness, and ask God to redeem the time and accept the Holy Spirit to empower you not to make that same mistake again. Have you experienced major changes in your life recently? Thank God for the good changes and ask God to give you the acceptance of the not-so-good changes. Right Under God, all changes are good. God will work all things together for good, but it might not seem good at the time. So if you're in the process of change and going through change, that's a stressful situation. Moses went through a lot of changes. Surrender the change to God and thank him. And ask him to guide and direct you through the change. Maybe you were experiencing a time of peace, happy with your family, ministering to a small group of sheep, and thrown into some major task or difficulty. Surrender it to God. Let him lead and guide and direct you. I know someone is going through something because she made a right frontal lobe decision, chose to follow God, stand up against her boss, the company, was fired, caused change in her life. She's at peace and doing the right thing. Same person around the same time. Saw some doctrinal errors in the congregation she was a part of. Chose to make a right decision to follow God and follow his word. Had to separate, had to change from that congregation, but made the choice to follow God's word. God will give us the ability to make that change, surrender it to him. Have him walk us through it. Are you experiencing fears or insecurities? Like Moses before Pharaoh, before the, the Lord? I can't, I can't, I can't. Confess them, accept the blood of Messiah for forgiveness. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give you boldness, faith, and courage. Have you ever thought that it'd be better if God took your life? Usually, in most of our cases, at some point in time in life, those thoughts will come into our heads. Choose to believe that God has a purpose for your life. Just as God had purpose for Elijah going on, God has a purpose for you. Just as God still had another 40 years in store for Moses to do great things through Moses, God still has a purpose for you and will do great things through you as well. The best is yet to come. Choose to accept his love and his power, and his grace. You might not even see it, can't know it, can't figure it. Well, who's he going to help me? What's he going to do? But God still has a plan. God is in control. God loves you with an everlasting love. Have people been unappreciative of all that you have done for them? All those diapers I changed. All that I did at that job. Choose to give the ungrateful grumblers and complainers over to God. Choose to be only concerned with the appreciation that God gives and not humans. And God will give us appreciation from humans as well at time to time. 
But the best appreciation and the strongest love comes directly from God. And when we're content with that, then we can receive the other love and other appreciation as well, from humans as well. Don't let their unappreciativeness derail us and get us off. Again, that's just part of life. It's going to be part of life. It's happened in the past to you. It'll happen in the future. It's going to happen. We're not always going to be appreciated. And again, the ones we help the most are sometimes the ones who are the most ungrateful. <laughs> that's just how it is. But God sees it all, and God records it all, and God appreciates it. God has written it in the books of heaven on your behalf. It has not gone unnoticed. And will not go unrewarded. What responsibilities are on your shoulders currently? Feeling burdened with too much to do? Who would be able to help you with your responsibilities? Choose to trust that God will provide the grace and help you need, even if currently there is no humans who can. Trust him, God can help all by himself, can send angels, whatever, unseen, or he can bring people into our lives that we don't know now. But surrender the burden to God. Stop trying to carry it on our own. Give it over to him. And leave it with him. And then ask God to have the courage and strength to go and ask somebody for some help. You might be surprised at how many be willing to help out. If you're going through a difficult time, choose to accept the current situation, trusting that God is using it to develop your character for his kingdom and for a future purpose that he has for you. Moses had no idea when he was in Pharaoh's court what God was going to use him for. I'm sure when he was there in the wilderness, what am I doing here with these sheep? I was supposed to deliver the people. What on earth am I doing here? You might be thinking, what am I doing in this job? Why am I here in this neighborhood? Why am I surrounded with these people? How am I ever going to soar with the eagles if I'm surrounded by turkeys? <laughs> but God uses those times to build us and develop us. It was the first 40 years of Moses' life that helped prepare him for the last 40 years. It was that second 40 years of that in the wilderness that helped prepare him for the third portion as well. That whole 80 years of all that he went through all prepared him for the last. And everywhere you are now and everywhere you've been and every situation God has taken you through has prepared you for heaven, has prepared you for his calling upon you now, has prepared you for the calling he has for you. The rejections, the hurts, and the pain give us the ability to comfort and, and, and be compassionate on others. Makes us strong, trusting in the Lord, more surrendered to him, draws us closer to him for our love and Acceptance makes us more dependent on him than on humanity. God will work all things together for good. And so whatever situation you're going through now, choose to accept it and ask God to use it for his honor and glory. And today, is your life more self-centered, non-centered, or God-centered? If you could not honestly say God-centered, pause right now in your own quiet wilderness and ask God to reveal himself to you and to recenter your life so that he is the center. 
And brace yourself, because it might mean a Moses-type experience awaits you. But it'll be well worth it. It was in the wilderness that God found Moses. It was in the wilderness that Elijah found, Mo- uh, that Elijah found God. It was in the kind of a wilderness in the belly of a whale that Jonah found God. Sometimes it's in the wilderness experiences that we find God. So allow God to be center and realize that without him we are nothing and experience the true meekness of God. And if your prayers have been more about God helping you than God helping others, ask God to give you his heart and his love for others. And then don't just pray about them, but pray for them, for their benefit, for their welfare. Right? So instead, oh God, help me, help me, they're mean to me, oh God, help me, help me, help me, they're not helping me, oh God, help me, help me, they're not loving me, oh God, help me, help me, they're not appreciating me. Pray for them. Lord, forgive them. Lord, they're, they're not happy. They're discontent. They're, they're mean. They're, they're unsatisfied. They're, they're empty. Lord, help them. Lead them to you. Save their souls. Change their hearts. Change their minds. God, give us godly pity for them. That's where God's heart is. That's how God feels. And so if any of these areas apply to you, let us pray and let God do his mighty work in helping us and healing us, delivering us and using us. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we thank you, Lord, that you are over it all, that you see it all, and that you're all powerful and almighty and everywhere all at once. And yet even in your vastness and your mightiness and your glory, your awesomeness, you're right here with us as well. And not only right here with us, you're right with each one of us. And not only are you here with us individually, you know each of us. You know our struggles, you know our problems, you know our difficulties, you know our past, and you know our future. You know the plans you have for us. Lord, meet our need. Lord, give us a heart of love for you. Help us to see ourselves as we really are. Help us to see our nothingness. Help us to see your great love for us, even in our nothingness. Give us a love for you. Give us faith, give us courage. Remove from us our sinful tendencies, our selfishness and our self-centeredness. Thank you, Yeshua, for dying for us, manifesting your love towards us. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Holy Spirit, come into us. Give us a sense of your love of your acceptance, of your approval, making us your children, adopting us, loving us with an everlasting love. 
hold us by the hand and carry us through. Walk us through and use us for your honor and glory. Use us and make us a blessing. Make us meek before you, surrender to you. Make us powerful to stand against all the forces of the enemy and against the gates of hell to deliver your people and to help those in need. Use us, O Lord. Put your stamp upon us. Put your name upon us. Fill us with your spirit and empower us to walk in your ways. Carry our burdens and walk with us. And do miraculous things through us. For your honor and for your glory. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.